coming to you from the Motor City. Hello, and welcome to Detroit's Daily Docket. In this mini-episode, we are continuing our interviews with forensic pathologists around the country. Today, Dr. Sung and Dr. Wen are talking to Dr. Milad Webb, who currently works at the Hillsborough County Medical Examiner's Office in Florida. He was a previous fellow and then a pathologist with us at Wayne County. You may remember hearing him on our first season, and we're happy to have him back on the podcast. Stay tuned. Continuing on this next part of our journey where we are talking with different medical examiners throughout the country, we have Dr. Webb uh, with us again today. And currently, as our listeners know, he sadly left our office to a much warmer environment down in Florida. Dr. Webb, welcome back. Hey, it's wonderful to be back with you guys. Um, I, I am in a much warmer place, by the way. Just uh, just so you know, I think you guys were like at negative 30 like wind chill and at the same time i was 82 degrees (laughs) (laughs) so so there are some good things about moving south well probably you see more decomp bodies than we do absolutely i would i would 100 agree with you even in the winter time where you guys get a little reprieve from dealing with the decomposition we still have uh decomposition in the summertime, it's outrageous. Bodies left for a single day uh, will come in with significant decomposition because of the um, how hot and humid. The humidity also plays a significant role. And it, you can imagine the circumstances where somebody is in a car, mm-hmm. it gets packed really mm-hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. And you get some really significant changes very rapidly. So no frozen bodies? <laughs> People here freak out if it hits like (laughs) 60 degrees or below. Like there is palpable anxiety at 60 degrees. (laughs) Uh, Bringing it back to forensics, though, I think the whole, as you mentioned, the rate of decomposition is something that the general public may not necessarily be aware of, where they look at a book and they think, well, why, why can't you take a liver temperature and tell me when my significant other died? It's really... Not that case, especially with environmental factors. Absolutely. I agree 100%. The, uh, the liver temp issue that you're mentioning, we actually discussed this uh, in the office here. And uh, we said, should we be taking liver temps at the scenes? And it's just not that viable uh, to do it nowadays. I think it's more classically done but for the, like the invasive nature of that procedure, doing that in the field and the information that you get is so limited. And most of the time, almost universally, that information is rarely ever requested and, and is rarely ever relevant. Only once in a while do you have to try to get a time of death to be more accurate than what we can typically get in, a, in the postmortem exam room. So I know our listeners were able to walk through some of your decision-making processes of going into forensic pathology, but as a recap, can you just briefly tell us why did you want to become a forensic pathologist? Sure. Really quickly, the, I didn't have a plan 
from when I was young. I know many people have parents or they had a family member that was close to them that was a certain profession and they would fall in love with that idea. I didn't have that. I went to medical school uh, knowing that I wanted to be a physician, but I didn't know uh, what type. I even entertained many primary care fields and surgical careers. But ultimately, I fell in love with pathology just by chance. I didn't know much about it, but when I met the first few pathologists in my third year and fourth year, I really had a great relationship with them. I clicked with them. I saw medicine the same way that they did. And so I knew very early that I wanted to pursue pathology. But again, I still didn't know anything about forensics at this point. And I can tell you for sure, I never, I never even ruminated about the idea of forensics other than, you know, watching interesting TV shows or movies. And I never thought about myself being that person. Um, but then when you start rotating through forensics as a pathology resident, I, again, had, went through the same kind of process. I met Dr. Jensen, um, and he was very important um, in shaping my interests in pathology. And then I decided to go to Wayne County, do a rotation there where I met Dr. Sung and Dr. Lavity and Dr. Schmidt and some of the docs who have left the office, um, like Dr. Diaz. I started to do research with uh, some of these individuals because I just had such a great relationship with them. One of the key determining, determining factors in the way we choose our careers is the interaction we have with a faculty member. If we have a really great interaction, we have a, we have a great connection, we see things similarly, we're able to enjoy our day, that has a really positive effect on us. So a lot of it was just opportunity and me pursuing uh, those opportunities because of the relationships that I formed. And now that I'm here, I, I can't see myself doing anything else. I'm very lucky to be able to do a job that I, I love to get up and go to. As we go through our years of practice, where we work sometimes changes. Now, can you describe for us your office and your volumes, things that you encounter that are different? Of course, and this is a great opportunity to give you like a comparison because uh, Hillsborough County and Wayne County are roughly the same size. Uh, they're probably maybe like a million and a half for Hillsborough County, which includes Tampa Bay and the surrounding suburbs. And I think that's roughly similar to Wayne County, uh, Detroit and its suburbs. But the demographic of cases that I see here is significantly different. So, for example, Wayne County sees a little over 300 homicides a year. Is that my ballpark correct? This year is a little higher, but in general. Yeah, definitely. Across the board, 2020 has been record year for a lot of jurisdictions in terms of homicides. But yeah, roughly a little over 300, maybe 350 or so for Wayne County. And for the same population in Hillsborough County, we see just over 100. That's a, that's a significant change. But then motor vehicle collisions, I have done more motor vehicle collisions here than I wanted ever do ever again in my lifetime. It is astounding. I have multiple per day, like multiple per day. And don't you have a lot of motorcycle or no? It's actually not a lot of motorcycle. It's a lot of drunk drivers oh. hitting pedestrians. Oh. I don't know. I think the good weather allows yeah, a lot of people to be probably. just out on the street you know, walking around and mm -hmm. they commute on foot and on bicycle. And um, 
I also sign out a lot of chronic alcoholism deaths. And so I see a lot more motor vehicle collisions. And I see much fewer homicides. I see much fewer child deaths. So demographic-wise, much different, much different types. In terms of the office itself, it's set up very similarly to Wayne County. Uh, Here we have five uh, MEs right now, uh, a fellow, and then a new ME will be joining us in a couple of months. Uh, An ME works every few days, and they have a backup person that's supposed to assist you in the autopsies. So if I had more than four autopsies, for example, I would have a backup person to help me do a few of them. The distribution of work is significantly different in the office where uh, you might have a lot of auxiliary staff that helps you in the post-mortem suite. We do not. I have autopsy technicians that are in the office and that work with me and assist me, but I perform the bulk of the autopsy on my own. And sometimes I may not have an autopsy tech available to me because they may be doing uh, other things. So I might have to do the entire case myself. So where you can do 12 or 15 autopsies in a single day, it would be very challenging for us to do that in the same time period. That illustrates some of the differences in offices and you know, utilization of the individuals in that office. It definitely sounds very much different from our two institutions. Yeah. Right. And then I wanted to make a mention about Florida in general. I know uh, the people from outside of Florida see the uh, Medical Examiner Commission or the Florida bylaws as some kind of a mystery or obstacle. And coming in from the outside, they have a tendency to look at it negatively. I have to say that in the period of time that I've been here, it has not affected my day-to-day work even one time. The bylaws are for the most part structured very similarly to the name guidelines and the medical examiner commission rarely ever interferes with the policies of each office but is really there as a liaison to the larger governments or law enforcement bodies in the state i think in the off chance where a medical examiner needs to be uh, censured, I think they they might come in at that point, but I haven't been here long enough to see how that process works. In addition, they do have a positive effect where they have these monthly meetings where they can look at all of the case volumes from the different counties and look at trends and then communicate those trends as a as one entity, as one body to the state legislature to so they can deal with situations like COVID, or if they had some other, uh, a drug problem, like a new drug would that was to come to the market and cause a bunch of deaths, uh, the medical examiner's commission would um, have a, a consensus meeting essentially and deliver that consensus to the legislature as a single body. So far, it, it has not been an obstacle and the individuals that are on the board are very knowledgeable and they're uh, professional individuals that, that do a great job. Are there any particular cases or types of cases that generally garnish a little more scrutiny? So in the jurisdiction that I'm in, uh, law enforcement is very heavily involved in cases. Here, every homicide gets the full court press where I I have to schedule the autopsy 
at a time when the investigating officers and detectives can attend and uh, they send their own forensic photographer that is step by step like I do a, like I do a procedure, I, I find a, an important finding or a piece of evidence, I have to stop, I photograph it, the police investigator has to um, look at it, we document it, we talk about it, if they have questions, they ask, and everything happens live, real time. So I retrieve the projectile, the detective is right there writing down where I pulled it from. I put it on the scale. He wants to record the grain weight of the projectile right there. He gets on the phone and he calls the, you know, individuals at the scene and immediately they're investigating like what firearm that came from, were there casings that match that projectile. And I mean, everything works just a little bit differently where all of the same things happen in your jurisdiction. um, I feel like you don't have to deal with that like live mm-hmm. as often as I have to deal mm-hmm. with it live. And uh, that extends beyond just gunshot wound homicides. Any pediatric death, even overlays or sleep-related deaths in infants, I have a police investigator. I have police forensic photographer. And so you can imagine sometimes it slows things down, but they also get a very detailed understanding of the autopsy. And because these officers have attended so many autopsies at this point, they are very knowledgeable. And they, um, when I ask certain questions, they've heard those same questions many times. So they're often prepared to answer them. Do you find that that interaction aids in the public relations aspect of our job? I definitely form a much better relationship with the officers and the officers understand and form a better relationship with me. So when I show up at the scene and I show up, uh, I regularly go to the scenes. Many people already there know me and they know, oh, you know, hey doc, nice to see you. And they already can anticipate the things that I need and then the things I need to do, Um, they know, the things that I prefer compared to a different medical examiner. Like many times, I don't like to do a scene examination like in the view of the public, you know, so I like to have a tent set up over the body wherever possible. I like to strip the clothing from the decedent at the scene. So I just feel like our relationship uh, between the medical examiner's office and the law enforcement is much more improved because of how much interaction we have. Mm-hmm. So you described the similarities and differences between the two offices. Is there anything that um, when you worked here at Wayne that you wish you had that you had at Florida or vice versa? The the staff that you have available to you in the postmortem room is uh, mm-hmm. is, is very good. And, mm-hmm. I, and I hope that you guys realize how special you are to have the staff that you have. Uh, the freedom that you give them to do that job and how you train them and, and how professional they are. And this, it goes beyond just having, you know, a number of techs and PAs, but also your forensic photographers, um, individuals that uh, are, are well-versed in um, your LODOC system and your investigators. It's, it's very special to have that kind of a team. Uh, we have a very special team here. Uh, my autopsy techs are outstanding. 
the investigators are also very good at their jobs. They can anticipate the needs of the office on each medical examiner. Uh, they are very communicative. Uh, I get a lot of phone calls, like anticipating pitfalls. If you can anticipate some pitfalls and address them before they occur, then you're already ahead of the game. And I, and I think many of the individuals here are the same, but I don't have the volume of staff that you guys have. And sometimes that, that stresses us when we have very busy days. I don't have a forensic photographer. Um, having a forensic photographer is a luxury. Wow. Uh -huh. It is a, yeah. it's a luxury. And I hope that you guys understand how awesome it is to have that. Um, the photos I take are garbage compared to the <laughs> professional would take, but I do my best. I have a, a head up from uh, the other people because I got to work side by side with a forensic photographer for so long and, and train with one. Um, but it's challenging to be able to do, you know, the autopsy mm -hmm. portion and then stop, change hats, do the forensic photography portion. Um, it slows everything down. Uh, I'm not as good at it as, as somebody who's trained in that field. Um, so th there's, there are a lot of things that you have that facilitate you getting your cases out quickly and getting the best turnaround time that you can possibly get. And sometimes when you don't have that staff available to you, those turnaround times suffer. And then you are left with explaining why it's certain some things are taking so long to families. Is there anything that you wished you had before moving on to where you are right now? I had outstanding training. So I don't, uh, I don't think that any, any single aspect of the training, uh, like I, I'm very comfortable with every case that I see, I know how to approach it. And more than that, because I had such great mentors and such great faculty and staff, if I have a question, I don't have any problems asking somebody who knows more than I do. I know how to look at the literature. I know how to go to the textbook. And I think that was really reinforced because of my training background. And that is one of the strengths of, uh, that's one of my strengths is that I know where to go for help. I know where to go to get additional information. And that was reinforced to me by training at Wayne County and at the University of Michigan. Experience, I think, bridges a lot of gaps. So I don't think there was anything uh, more that I could ask for from my training. Disclaimer, we didn't pay you to say that, right? <laughs> for no, that shameless no. Plug. Unfortunately, I'm not getting anything. <laughs> um, now that you are around two to three years out, is there anything that you wish you would have known before starting your career or now, any advice for those younger ones that are starting oh, out? Yes. You know what? Dr. Jensen once told me, so I was a fellow. I was working and I, and I was rotating through the university. I had just come off of a big block at uh, Wayne County. And he asked me, oh, did you have a chance to look at, you know, he, he gave me like an article or something. He's like, hey, did you have a chance to look at that yet? And I said, no, I'm, I'm really busy. I'm trying to get caught up on these cases. And he looked at me, he's like, you're a fellow. He's like, this is the most time you're ever going to have. And I didn't really understand it at the time. And I was like, oh God, like, what does he want from me? <laughs> and now I understand that 
there's no time <laughs> for anything. And I wish I would have used more of my time when I was a resident and I was a fellow to do some more academic pursuits. You know, I did a lot of academic pursuits, but now it's just, I don't have any time to do those things. Like there's so many things I want to do. And I, I lie to myself every day. Uh, at the end of each day, I pack my bag and I say, I'm going to read this tonight. <laughs> I'm going to look at this tonight. I'm going to get ahead on this case tonight. I'm going to, and then I get home and I'm, I have a three-year-old and a four-year-old and I'm exhausted by the time I get there. And all I want to do is just like lay down and recharge for a whole new day. So time, mm -hmm. if, if I could tell any young trainee, any young resident about like what to expect is that you're going to be busy mm -hmm. and use the time you have now. Read books, do academic things uh, that you like to do, pursue research uh, that you want to do do the things that are going to be most enjoyable to you now and set up a good foundation for yourself to continue that once you become a, a full faculty member, a full-time a full professional. Because a lot of that opportunity, unfortunately, goes out the window when you have a full docket of cases and you have teaching obligations and you have residents that rotate, medical students that rotate, so some of those other fun things, maybe if you want to write something, or if you want to just review some of the newest literature that comes out, it's very hard to do. I laugh to myself because one of my exercise regimens are the papers that I put in my backpack that I move from my <laughs> office to my home and back to my office. They just move through osmosis. Right. Through right. osmosis, they'll get to you. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's, it's like weightlifting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> weightlifting. Over a very long period of time, yeah. So the the stack of papers sometimes grows, <laughs> and we just move it. Exactly. Work to car to car to house, mm -hmm. house to car, and then every now and then, you know what? When I need it, I yeah, forgot they, it somewhere. Exactly. And then you, and then you, re, it you reprint it off, and then. And, uh, <laughs> now I'm going to put you on the hot seat a little bit. We all make mistakes. I have made so many of my own. <laughs> For yourself. Don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> but for yourself, what is one of the most notable ones that you've made and, and what did you learn from it? Oh, I, you know, it's like you said it, we make mistakes every day. And I try to tell that when to trainees that come through and I tell them every time you make a mistake, you want to like sear that into your memory and don't forget that you made that mistake. And let me just tell you some of like the minor ones and then let's see, uh, let's see if I can think of one of the big ones. Um, most of the big ones, I, I try to wall off. And <laughs> in my mind, um, you know, when I was a trainee, when I was uh, younger, I think, I think we've all made these omissions on our reports where there was like template text in a report that uh, we meant to delete or we meant to alter and it gets submitted, and then a family member notices some template text that's still left in the report. For example, like an appendix that you said was normal that was taken out. A, same thing with a gallbladder that was you said looked normal, and the person had a had the gallbladder removed. And that's really embarrassing mm -hmm. when you get on the phone with families because. 
your very first impression with that family is that you're an idiot. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I have been uh, that idiot on the phone uh, many times telling the families, this is unacceptable. This is not how we intend to do our cases and telling them that, no, in fact, I did do the autopsy on your loved one. And this wasn't a random person that we misidentified. Uh, it's an uphill battle. Um, but every time one of these things happens, I try to, first of all, right away, own responsibility for it. That happened. And I can't deny that it happened. I can't make an excuse for it happening. Even though there might be a valid excuses, that family doesn't care if you have an excuse or not. What that family wants to know is that you screwed up and that you're sorry. And I think the most sincere way that you can communicate that fact, the better off you're going to be. And then remember that experience and check those things. Don't cut corners. Stick as close as you can to the standard guidelines. And I've said this uh, you know, many times, and I tell the trainees here all the time, that we naturally drift away from the standard guidelines all the time because we get comfortable at the routine that we do. So we start doing it quickly and we start forgetting about some of those nitpicky details. For example, like taking the appendix doesn't necessarily have a, it's not a vital component to the postmortem exam. But yeah, it does have an effect because some people confirm the identity of their loved one because of some missing appendix or not. We have to remain as close to that standard guideline as we can. And, and every now and then go back, look at those and go, oh, wow, you know, that is in there. And I, have, I haven't done that for years. And maybe I should go back and, and start doing that again so I can refresh that. I hope that I don't end up making a huge mistake, something that is uh, like an unforgivable mistake that's in my book, like um, a misidentification um, or a uh, missing a, uh, a homicide. I think missing a homicide is probably, you know, in the back of every medical examiner's mind. Every case we do, we first think is, could this be a homicide? And I hope that my experience and um, my training has, has taught me enough to be sense, to have very high sensitivity uh, to homicides. But you know what? Even if I'm 99.999% uh, accurate, that thousandth case or that 10,000th case, you're going to screw one up. And I think if you understand that no matter how good you are, the potential of making a mistake is always there, then you know that you really have to mind what you're doing, pay attention to what you're doing, be focused, um, because it doesn't matter how many years you've been doing this or how well you trained or where you trained, everybody has the potential of screwing up. I've been lucky so far not to make a huge screw up, and, but I do make you know minor mistakes probably on a daily basis. Now, I'll tell you a little story to make you feel a little bit better. Uh, there was a case I did years ago, years ago, and on the death sorry, on the autopsy, we always look at you know, various characteristics of the body, such as hair color, eye color, uh, teeth, things like that. 
And on this particular autopsy, I indicated that the decedent had a full set of dentures. And after I finalized the report, a little while later, their spouse came in and they literally yelled at me for 20, 30 minutes that how could I say that their loved one had dentures? They had a full set of teeth. They've been married for 20, 30 years, and I simply didn't know what I was doing. And I effusely apologized, and after our meeting, which I felt really badly about, I, I, I was asking myself, how in the world did I put that this person had dentures? And how could I miss that? Mm-hmm. And two days later, I received a phone call from that same person, and they apologized to me and said, yes, they checked the records from the, their spouse's dentist, and they, in fact, had a set of dentures. And they and never knew it. They never knew it. Wow. Mm. I think here's a great example. Here's something that comes to mind as something that a new trainee probably doesn't get enough training in, and that's talking to families and understanding the grieving process after death. It's something that we seldom talk about and we learn along the way. But a couple of pointers, I think, to people who are newly going into forensics, uh, learning how to speak with loved ones is a vital skill and understanding the grieving process is a vital skill. Dealing with parents that want to deny the uh, whatever information that you have presented to them and how to deal with that. Um, in Nowhere in any of these textbooks behind me is that addressed on how to deal with that. Um, but it is, I think, a vital component of the job that we do. Because if you suck at that part, you're not going to be able to do your job for very long. Um, what we do in the post room is only you know, a component of what we do. We have to be able to communicate that information to other people. That is really our job, is to communicate what we find. And if we are not good at that, it's a, it's a significant challenge. Very good advice for, for anybody. And you, even if you are years into your practice, you don't want to forget that. You, know, it's, you can be the smartest person the most read, most published, but if you can't talk to other people, it's it, that, that's really it. Uh, let me see. Do you have any other advice you'd want to give to those just starting out in their career? The only thing that really comes to mind is that what I like to see in a new trainee, and that's energy. I like to see somebody enjoying what it is they're doing. I would tell a new trainee to savor each moment there that you know your training time is actually a really good time and get to know your mentors personally ask them about their kids ask them about what they do on the weekends Uh, learn who they are try to spend time with them even if they don't want to and really that's where you learn how to do your job find a mentor that you love what it is they do and you love who they are and try to emulate that don't just emulate them in the post room but find a good person and try to emulate them in life. I think Dr. Sung is a fantastic example Agreed. of somebody that leads a life and, and, and uh, he's a, just such a wholesome human being that I want to be like him. 
<laughs> um, and I've been so lucky to be surrounded by so many nice people and good people uh, that not only taught me how to do my job, but indirectly taught me how to live my life. Any other influential people in your life? Mm-hmm. Other than myself, of course. <laughs> Absolutely nobody. <laughs> well, I'm lucky enough to talk to... I'm lucky enough to talk to two of my mentors, you, Dr. Webb, and Dr. Sung. Is there anyone else you referenced, Dr. Jensen and Dr. Sung, anyone else that you thought was a big influence? I hate to, to like name people because I will, I will inevitably leave somebody off that, I, mm-hmm. that was a very important person. Mm-hmm. But I will say that the people that have, uh, I've interacted with to this point in my life, I think every single person holds a very important role. Uh, like Dr. Wynn here was the first fellow that I got to interact with as a junior faculty member. And it taught me a, uh, a lot of things about myself. And it taught me a lot about how to best approach or how to not best approach a, a new fellow. So forever, for the rest of the time, I'm going to remember Dr. Wynn because she was where I got to learn how to teach and what to do when they refuse to learn. <laughs> you, you can't leave it at that, Dr. Wynn. <laughs> Dr. Wynn is outstanding. I wish I had a Dr. Wynn every year. Honestly, I think that uh, Dr. Song would agree that there are certain fellows that if you could just have that person every year, our jobs would be a lot easier. And Dr. Wynn was one of those people that just makes work easier. Even when she was a fellow, she just did things right. And even if she didn't know all the finer details, she could find you the answer and she could do it right. And I really appreciated having her. And I appreciate that, but I think it's exactly what you said. I think fellows are a reflection and I think I am a reflection of all the attendings that have taught me have been my mentors. So special thanks to you being one of my mentors as well as Dr. Sung. Anything that I do right is a reflection of you guys. So thank you. <laughs> uh, you're kind. Mm. Now just moving on to more of a lighthearted note. <laughs> if you could, uh, Desert Island question, if you could pick one tool, one autopsy tool to have with you, what would you pick? I really want to say scissors because I think that's the that's like the cool thing to say, but I don't know how you do a Y incision with scissors. And how could you open the skull? Right, I don't know. I think the probably the sound answer would be like like a twelve inch blade, like a Ooh, okay. like a chef's knife, right? <laughs> like that's the best thing. Um, but maybe a, I'd say just like a large knife. A scalpel is not going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think Dr. Sung would agree. Oh, yes. I like the use of sharp instruments, particularly the long blade in the autopsy. The long room. blade, yeah. <laughs> okay. Last question. Okay. Very serious. If you could choose, what superpower do you wish you had? Maybe like super strength. That would be cool. Like the human jaws of life. <laughs> what, what would you do, Dr. Sung? We never talked about this. What would you do? I've always wanted to fly. My geography is horrible, and I'm a little afraid of heights, so I don't know where that would put me, <laughs> being able to fly. <laughs> so, Dr. Webb, I had a great time, and thank you very much for coming on with us. I miss you guys. We miss you. I miss you guys we very much. You. Um, I can't wait to, uh, after the COVID experience has been uh, 
you know, we put it behind us and we can travel again. And um, I am going to have to travel up for some court cases. I can't wait to come into the office and say hello and, and catch up with old friends. Oh, we can't wait for that either. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.